is Dina Saunders-Green, and you're listening to Formally Fostered, brought to you by Green Pines Media. This is a podcast about foster care and children's mental health services, and sometimes the juvenile justice system, mainly because there's a lot of intersection between the three. We give emancipated youth and their allies a place to share their truth. Hello, and welcome to Formally Fostered. In this episode, we'll be hearing from an ally who spent quite a few years working directly with former foster youth as a service provider and as an advocate. He's also worked with victims of human trafficking. He'll be sharing some information about how to make a difference in the lives of survivors, but we won't be going into too much detail. Of course, feel free to screen this episode before allowing young children to listen. We are going to get started with him talking a little about his education and how he got started in social services. My bachelor's degree was in uh, broadcast journalism and sociology. And um, so I had did internship and all that in television. And I, I thought to myself, wow, the only experience I haven't gotten um, as far as professional is with social services. And so I started looking around. I'm like, what um, area would I like to start? And then I learned about group homes and what they were about for foster kids and things. So I went into my first um, group home setting where it was actually a big center and it was for boys and girls. And it was about, I think we had about 21 or 22 beds there. So I went in and uh, as a direct care counselor. And there's when I learned so much because we had on-site social workers, on-site therapists, and I started really getting uh, a lot of uh, knowledge and understanding of their world and working one-on-one with the children and the teenagers and learning their stories and seeing the family dynamics um, and the things that they go through with the system. And um, um, I did that for a year. Then I um, graduated college and came straight five months later to um, California to go back to school. And I ended up getting back into the field and social work where I started man- uh, managing group homes and uh, these were both level 12 and level 14s. And, um, you know, really just learning how to um, now implement programs and treatment and working with psychiatrists and social workers and therapists and the teachers and the IEPs and really getting really deep in it now. But it was great because now I had an opportunity to make a difference and uh, suggest and implement different type of, uh, I guess you could say, um, treatment plans within programs and uh, had a chance to see measurable outcomes, to see what works, what doesn't work. And I got more and more passionate about it. And I started to learn, you know, um, just a lot about the system itself as far as what the system is truly commissioned to do. And that is uh, protect the children and not uh, not necessarily nurture them. And so that was another challenge, yeah. Can you explain the difference between the different levels of group homes? You mentioned level 12, level 14. Yeah, so the different levels is level 12 is what's looked at as your uh, normal functioning teen versus your level 14, which is your uh, mentally delayed teen. Okay, and what age range is that typically, at least that you've worked with? The youngest I believe that I worked with was, I want to say, uh, 12. The one youngest I worked with, the oldest was um, 18. And then um, I started eventually in my later in my career managing and running a program for uh, transitional age youth. And so, of course, those were older in their 20s and things up up to 20. So from 18 to like, I think my oldest was 26. 
going back to the very beginning when you were working, when you were first working with group homes, have you seen some that literally were just made you think this is terrible, I need to make changes, let me make sure that this never happens again? Has that ever come up in your work with different group homes? Unfortunately, absolutely. Um, and that, again, what drew my passion and got me more uh, serious about things. I remember uh, one that, you know, I worked at, it was just even from the environment of, um, you know, expecting these kids are already taken away from their families. They're already feeling they're not worth anything. They don't matter. Um, they're feeling like second rate citizens because they know, you know, they're not like their friends who live at home with their families or whatever. And then the home that they're in and you're getting, you know, money for these children being there but you can't provide like nice paint on the walls. You can't provide nice decor, um, you know, landscape, you know, and they, a, so they come home and they see this. And what for me, you know, one of the homes I worked at, it was in a very nice neighborhood. So, you know, all the houses in the neighborhood are looking very nice. Right. <laughs> so why can't this house look nice? You know, so I, I felt like there were so many things reinforcing that negative uh, stereotype and basically that lie that they weren't good enough. And so uh, I know personally, I fought uh, in one home to get it and we were all told no, because um, I got all the other directors uh, and program managers of the houses to um, basically agree with me. And so we all asked and then we were told no. And so I had, I asked for a personal meeting with the head of the company myself. And I went with, I went in with statistics, with data, um, I showed him the importance of color, how that matters and with your psyche um, and all these types of things. So I let, long story short, I left out of there and I was given the amount of paint that I need. So you were just asking for simple things like yep. color and decor to make them feel like they were at home. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we did. So I got all the boys room painted a green. I got the bathroom painted blue. We had the rest of the house painted in this uh, nice tan color. And then, you know, the volunteers from churches that I solicited on my own. And uh, and then I have one of my staff that was really great at landscaping and she led it. And so we beautified the yard, the front yard and the backyard. Um, and I brought, I would use money a lot of times that were donated from us and we would buy curtains for the house. We would buy, you know, I made sure I went online looking on Craigslist and different places to find nice couches um, and things like that to really get the house decorated nice, got their rooms decorated so nice. I created vision boards for them. We have vision board activities where they can put that as decor over the bed, but also it was significant and meaningful. So just things like that to help them be proud. And we saw a major change, you know, where they got invested. And, you know, they were helping clean up, We were, you know, once a week. And then you'd see, you know, one boy now, the house is, is it's all nice. And, and they're, they constantly verbalize how nice things looked, how good it was. And they, they saw a peer put a foot on the wall. They go off. <laughs> we can't have anything nice, man. Take your foot off the wall. And it, and, and, and it was awesome because now they're invested and you see that they're grateful for it. Right. You know, they get off the school bus and they get to say, hey, my house looks nice, too. I am worth something because, you know, people invested in this because I live here. So they're invested in me. And it was just simple things like that. But it was the, the, the fight that we had to go through um, just for something that simple. But on the bigger side, I think for me, and actually I just spoke last night on a panel and it was about the foster, line, the foster care pipeline um, as it relates to human trafficking and what can we put in place, whatever. And one of the things that I shared is, you know, who or number one, you have to think about the foster kids period and foster who's that population right and why where, where are most of them coming from you know what is um those things that are that they have that are um 
they're unified in like it's, it's the abuse it's the trauma it's adverse uh, situations and things of that nature so they come there now and now they're with all these other kids that come from different backgrounds that were subjected to different adverse environments now you have staff that are coming in um, who are taking care of you from direct care staff to house management you're seeing psychiatrists you're seeing therapists to come in behavior therapists to come in your social worker so now it's this whirlwind of just all these different people that's coming in and saying I care about you and how can you care about me when the people that is supposed to care about me my biological parents or guardians don't care enough to get it together uh, so how can you and I know you're only gonna stay for a matter of time and you're gonna be out of my life so you know I'm constantly in this. so knowing that having this type of person there and and then you think about the system as far as what's put in place they're there to protect not necessarily nurture so all these policies and rules of you know you can't hug for these type of things you can't teach them how to cook because there's liability if something happens wait 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 wait! you can't teach them how to cook no no we could not i wanted to do cooking lessons and then to train them because myself i started cooking at 10 years old literally and i had a night by 12 years 12 years old i had a night in my normal family where i was responsible for preparing part of the meal so did my brother and so these are things that normal kids get to do with their parents, but because this, this, you know, they're afraid because these kids are wards of the state, so agencies are afraid if something happens that they'll get made, you know, majorly in trouble and sued or something. So um, they're against that. So you can bring in people to kind of cook for them and show them things, but they are not able to get the experience. And then driving was another thing. I had boys and girls, 17, they're going to be getting out soon. Right. And we wanted to get them into the driver's ed program to the school. It was not allowed. So my thing is we put them in these systems that's there to protect and that's great, but we cannot forget the nurturing part because now they have to get out of here at some point. If they're not blessed with connections and community, now they have to fend for themselves. And if they don't have those really great skills, then they're not going to be able to do that. And there's just certain things that are very, very important like that. Now, Yes, we have ILS and independent living skill programs, and I think a lot of people do well in it, but there are other things of life skills that are huge, like the driving, being able to cook on your own and those things, and being able to be trusted, you know, to have, you know, participate in school programs and things like that, like the normal kid, whether it's a sport or something like that. And so it's, it, for me, that was my big fight. Um, and I did what was in my power to do by making them feel like, hey, while they are here, we do have to protect ourselves and do follow policies. But at the same time, we're going to probably be the only big brothers, big sisters, aunts, uncles that they're going to kind of see while they're here. So we are going to have to make sure that that's our mindset. You know, we can't allow them to call us that, but in our, our love toward them, that's what we must show. I didn't yeah. know that was even still an issue as far as teaching the, those basic life skills like cooking right. and using cleaning supplies or, you know, all of those things. I thought it was yeah. something we had kind of moved past in social services, but I guess it depends. Certain organizations, uh, I feel, have, because um, I know of a couple that have, you know, moved past that, um, but then there's some that are still, you know, they're very stuck in the, those ways and they're very afraid. And it's not from, I don't feel it's from a bad heart, but it's from a fear base. And it's just not good because at the end of the day, who's being affected by it? And it is actually the kids and those young people that are aging out of the system. They're the ones being affected by it. 
First of all, how frustrating. <laughs> when I first started working with transition age youth, I remember being blown away because some were 18 but had never been shopping at a grocery store. And even if we helped them come up with a grocery list, some young adults would stand in the middle of the aisle overwhelmed because there were so many choices. Now, I knew that some had foster parents who had never taught them those skills. They just did everything for them. But honestly, I hadn't even considered that some kids in group homes weren't being taught basic life skills simply because of concerns with liability. <sighs> anyway, we talked a little about his work with victims and survivors of sex trafficking. I asked him if he could explain what human trafficking is and some of the things that he's seen among his clients. Here's what he had to say. I know we hear a lot about, you know, sex trafficking and things of that nature, but sex trafficking is a form of, of, of human trafficking. There's also uh, labor trafficking. There's also don't um, organ trafficking and things of that nature. But the work that I do is strictly dealing with labor and sex trafficking. The, basically, they're pretty similar in a way of as far as people are being uh, taken advantage of, they're being forced. So human trafficking is basically, is a, it's an action. It's an action or a practice, basically. Of it, it, it's all about it being illegal. So illegally transporting people from one space to another. So whether it's a country to another country or another area, it could be another area in a city. And this is for the purpose of, you know, having them being forced to labor for them for money, financial gain, or, and that can come in the form of sex or just plain work. Okay. So the trafficking part comes because they're moving them from place to place uh, to to work, basically. And they're, and so it's, you know, with uh, sex trafficking, basically you have force. There's a lot of people do it by force, so they do the fear base. They'll make the person afraid of them by physically being violent and uh, abusing them and things of that nature. And so they have no point to kidnapping. Then you have, you know, fraud. And, you know, where they'll get the blackmail of people, they'll get them into a situation where they feel, okay, so now you have to do this or we're going to tarnish your name. Yeah, for instance, like we're, we have a huge problem right now. Um, and I know this is going on in other parts of the world, but here uh, we have a very, very, very big problem, especially with the teenagers. Um, they're young men now being groomed to be traffickers by the traffickers themselves mm -hmm. and so what they're doing is they are targeting junior high school and high school age boys and they're using kind of the same approach because um, they're in communities of disparity where they know um, there's probably going to be neglect nine times out of ten because the uh, families have to work so they're not spending a lot of time with them the kids are raising themselves um, they are doing a lot of um, you know, financial, like entice them with money because, you know, well, we're in a community of disparity, more than likely they don't have this access money, you know, to do things and to buy things or whatever. So they're fascinated by an intrigue. So they'll get these boys and they will groom them and ask them to basically, they'll pay them to go and sleep with a girl, get her to like them. And a girl that is struggling with self-esteem or struggling, you know, with, uh, um, just loving herself, whatever. Or maybe she's in a bad situation already, so there's something they know that's vulnerable about her. And have that boy groom her and sleep with her and get it videoed, and then they use that. But by the time they've done that, they've already found out, you know, what's kind of her situation with her family dynamic. It, does she belong to a church? Where does her parents work or parent work? Things of that nature. And so once this is on video, now they use that to say, hey, you come 
if you don't want us to show this and give this to your church, give this to your mom, give this to whoever, then you need to come here and work it off. And she has no clue that she'll never work it off. But then that's one of the forms of that blackmail. So I don't know if you caught that. He's seen teen boys as young as middle school being groomed by traffickers to exploit young girls. These criminals are smart and they are using our kids in ways that we can't even imagine. Now, in this day and age, we know that things aren't right when we see a young girl with a much older man, but we don't think twice when we see young girls hanging out with boys their own age. We need to have real conversations with our kids about sex and about healthy relationships. Like, this is not a game. This is not some rap video. This is real life. If our sons are caught pimping and trafficking girls, they're the ones who'll be going to prison, not the adults who are grooming them. My model is, you know, everyone needs to know about human trafficking. They need to be educated on it. I want to talk to every parent and I give them the opportunity. I get uh, invites a lot of times to many places to speak um, to teenagers. Right. And I, re I refuse to do it if I don't have the parent or the guardian's buy-in. And I always say, well, what I'd like to do first is I want to speak to whoever's responsible for these kids. Okay. And I want to educate them and train them. And then once I do that, because they need to have tools and be empowered too. Right. And they're going to have a role, to, a huge role to play in that because they're living day to day with the child or with the teenager. Right. And then um, after that, and then I want to give them the okay. I want to give them the um, ability to say, you know, yes, I want to subject my kid to this information or no, I don't. And then we go in and we or, you know, we share this information with them and we let them know the girls their age that this what's happening. Look at the stories that are out there. You know, this is done through video. This is done through real life stories um, and giving them opportunity. And it's amazing to see the times that I have done this, how the girls will literally like talk about certain experiences where they think they've seen that or they heard that or they know someone. And it's scary because it's been happening more often than not. My big thing is prevention. And this should be going on even in the foster care system very early on. Yes, I know we have CASAs and they're great. And I've worked with many of them. Um, and the thing about CASAs, though, they are asked for a two. And they're great people because they're doing this for free. But they're asked for a two-year commitment for the kid. And most of them do honor that. And, and then they move on. But what... I'm saying is I don't want anyone to be feel forced to have to have this lifetime commitment, but go in there with that heart of connecting. And it may last three months, it may last six months, but it could last a, li last a lifetime. Mm -hmm. You know, I have kids, now, they're adults now, the married kids of their own, but you know, I met them at 12, 13, 14 years old, and right. we've been in life together since. You know, I help them make decisions about work, uh, buying homes, you know, things of that nature with family. And that's important because they have a sense of community. Some have joined churches that I've been a part of, you know, and, and become part of that community over there and built relationships and things of that nature. So one of the things that we do is talk about prevention. Mentorship is so important to give them skills, to get take them out of environments, to give them opportunity to see something else, to, to be empowered, um, to just, and that's the key, because when you have a young woman, I don't care if she's 12, 13, 14, whatever, she's empowered now. She has someone in her life speaking life into her, you know, believing in her, letting her know she has purpose and she has something to do here. She's not going to be that easily um, convinced, manipulated, to be pulled into something like trafficking, no matter if she lives in a community that is full of disparity or not. 
Right. He's going to have vision to dream, to get out of there, to get educated, to gain knowledge, to do something to move toward those dreams and those goals now that she has. I'm always appealing to communities. I'm actually personally working on a mentor program myself. And it is um, just a mentor program that's going to be for uh, children of color that are in different uh, communities of disparity. So um, any children of color that are in communities of disparity and getting churches. So I have different faucets that I'm going after. Uh, one's a faith base. The other one is the uh, sheriff's department performing arts. I want to come from, have a full service approach to where we are having these mentors that are ready to go. So we have a kid that is interested in anything. It may be science, maybe medicine. We have these people that are dedicated in there and want so we can match them with them. If it's uh, legal, you know, attorney, if it's any of that type of stuff, we have that as well. Because there's so many people out there uh, that would love to make a difference, just don't know how to do it. And that can make a great impact in a, a teenager's life. Uh, by just being available and showing them some things and exposing them to some resources uh, and experiences that could just change the trajectory of their life. Mentoring can be powerful because every family is different. And the reality is, some kids won't talk to their parents for a number of reasons. And some parents are just busy trying to work and survive. I've talked about some wonderful mentoring programs out there. For example, I've talked a lot about Love Beyond Limits, which was started by Malika Long, who is now Malika Chris. Uh, her program is based in Long Beach, but she also serves other cities in Southern California. She's even won awards for her work. She's also made her life skills curriculum for teens available to the general public. It's called the 13 Stones Workbook, which is incidentally published by Green Pines Media. You can get it at the website greenpinesmedia.com or from Amazon. I love it because families can buy it for their teens and go through it at their own pace. Okay, so going back to the issue of sex trafficking. If you're a parent, a caregiver, a mentor, or just someone who cares about the kids in your family, I have a question for you. What would you do if the teen or tween in your life comes to you and tells you that they had sex? Now think about your response for a minute, especially if you consider yourself to be very conservative or devout when it comes to your faith. Now, what would you do if your teen or tween told you that not only have they had sex, but someone videotaped them and is threatening to release that videotape on the internet if they don't engage in more sex acts? Would you go off? Would you call them stupid or worse? Would you blame them? Would you punish them? Would you give them the silent treatment? The reality is traffickers are counting on those responses because it terrifies and it shames our kids. And that's what makes them vulnerable. Now, I know this is a sensitive subject and I know we want our kids to wait until they're older before they have sex. There's nothing wrong with that. And I encourage you to have those conversations. At the same time, please understand that they are being bombarded with images and messages that tell them that sex is no big deal and that it's just for fun and that there are no consequences. And let's not forget that there are people who become celebrities and millionaires because they had a sex tape. So in the moment, it can be difficult for our kids to make logical decisions. And let's not forget that their brains are still developing. Anyway, my question to my guests was, is there something you can say to parents like, here's the way to handle this situation? Basically, what do you tell parents so they can protect their kids? Here's what he had to say. That is a, an amazing, amazing and an important 
uh, question because that is exactly why I like to meet with the parents first. Because and I don't like to meet with them together with the teenagers because I want the the parents to feel free and not be emotional about it. And I want the teenagers to feel free and to share some things they may not feel because all these kids have different dynamics with their parents. Uh, You know, all families are different and I want them to feel very comfortable. But I do want to educate the parents. So when I do educate them now, it's like, okay, here's what you can do. And we talk about getting involved. I'm big on that. Don't get involved when it reaches your home or you know because it's too late at that point get involved now and when you get involved you can get your entire you can get your kids involved and they're learning and getting exposed to this world as well and you're empowering yourself and you're empowering them Uh, my daughter for instance will be nine years old this month in a few weeks she you know we just celebrated our um, anniversary of our organization and who was at the registration table helping with registration my daughter Awesome. I take her to some of the drop-in centers. And so she's only nine. So yes, I don't get as graphic with her about all the things that happen, but I let her know, here's what what this organization is about. Here's the people they help. Uh, These are the things that are going on with them. You know, there are guys out there and sometimes women that are doing very mean things to them, forcing them to come and do things that they don't want to do and they shouldn't be doing illegally Mm -hmm. um, for help and these kind of things. And these, these people pull them in, they lie to them. They make promises like they like them and and like so she's learning all that and she's like why do people do that but it's empowering her and she feels great when she's at these events helping out because she's like wow like she's making a difference speaking of empowerment and i know i've said this before but parents and caregivers please talk to your kids about sex it can be done in an age-appropriate way but it needs to happen if our kids don't know about sex and what appropriate relationships look like, it leaves them vulnerable to being abused and exploited. In this day and age, you can even just do a Google search on what does appropriate relationships look like if you're at a loss, like just use the tools that are available to you. And if you can't have that discussion um, on your own, find someone who can, find someone you trust, I should say, that's really important. And it shouldn't be a one-time discussion. We need to create an environment where our kids feel safe enough to come to us whenever they need to talk. Now, if you're one of those people who thinks your child will never need this information, you know what, okay, fine. But talk to them anyway so they can educate their friends. There's a a well-known celebrity, and uh, you might know who it is, but they, um, you know, I love them because they got proactive and they did something. They basically, uh, their daughter came home from school and she basically, um, told her mom, hey, you know, and I mean, mind you, both parents are celebrities, high profile for, for celebrities. Right. And they told she told her mom, hey, there's little girls like me that mm-hmm. are being trafficked, um, you know, sexually here and blah, blah, blah. And so she says, no, that's not happening here, honey. She said that is happening in other countries. And she started naming countries. Right. The daughter said, no, mom, that is happening here. Mm-hmm. She said right here. And they told they, and she said, where'd you get this from? They taught us at school. And so um, she said that night she got upset, you know, and she remember telling her husband, why are they showing this to our children and didn't ask our permission for this? And she's telling me this and telling me that. She said, and that night, you know, she emailed the school and then she got online. She started looking to see 
Mm-hmm. Um, what was her daughter talking about? And she found video after video after video. Mm-hmm. And she said, she just said, I got to do something. She said, she went to her husband, honey, what can we do? We can't, we have to do something. This is unbelievable. And then she started doing documentaries and traveling to different places in the United States, interviewing with companies that are serving the victims of trafficking and meeting with some of the girls. And I mean, it was a phenomenal thing. And so I've actually used uh, one of her videos in one of my sessions with uh, two girls, two teenagers before actually. So in case you missed it, once again, here is an educated social service provider telling us what the average family can do to fight human trafficking. The first thing is being educated, is being educated and because education leads to empowerment. And so if you don't get educated on the, the matter, um, you really, you, you, have, you don't know what to do. You don't even see it coming at you. So I think the first thing is having a family get educated on it. There's so many places out there, programs, agencies now, uh, even online where this information is available to just go and care and don't wait. And um, and I'm telling you, because now it's not about, there's nobody, because this thing is so much, this is a major, major moneymaker. Right. People are leaving drug the drug game to get involved in this. Yes. Because it's less risky and they can sell drugs one time, but I can sell a person multiple times. Exactly. And I put enough fear in them and these women, and some of these boys, especially that are undocumented, that are being you know used and forced as well, they will never say a word because they are very afraid. So they literally sit in jail for years and years while this person is still out doing their thing. So because this is such a, um, these people look at it as power, and this this industry is all it's it's, uh, it's like it's fueled for money through money and uh, by money. I think that what needs to happen is parents, people need to understand nobody is exempt. So I don't care if you're in suburban America, if it's a community of disparity, they're going after everyone now. Right. And they're finding that people in suburban America are more uh, naive because no one's talking about it. They're very out of touch. They don't even think it's happening in the country. So now they're getting people to recruit these girls and guys. And again, I have personally worked with uh, a few where they were being recruited by some people online and all of a sudden going to these parties in LA and these people were all under 18 years old and being grown to be trafficked and things of that nature. So um, it's happening. And I think that that's the first thing, get educated. Because once you get educated, now you know what it, what it looks like. You know uh, the different angles uh, that these people come at your children at. And then now you can figure out what best, because every time there's any type of education going on or awareness, we're always talking about you know, solutions. We're always talking about how to protect yourself and right. things of that nature. So, um, and that's it. Education costs nothing. I was curious, so I asked him, based on your experience, what are the greatest needs of young adults who've been victims of human trafficking? Here's what he had to say. Understanding of trauma. Mm. Understanding of trauma is a huge, huge, huge issue. So, now, of course, there's there's a lot of needs, you know, and I'm not going to, especially for sex trafficking, housing is a huge, huge uh, issue still right. in America, um, right. of having safe place housing. And again, but even in these house, these uh, safe place housing, if you don't understand trauma and how to be trauma informed, you end up hurting these people. And these victims will leave there. I've, I've seen some too, but we have tried to, um, because, you know, because there's such a, a the, the housing is scarce, we've tried to put them in domestic violence shelters. Mm. Well, those are, that's different. 
Yes. And we didn't think, we didn't realize that at the time, you know, when we started doing this, we we're thinking, okay, they're, they're victims of, you know, assault as well, sometimes rape, even by their husband or boyfriends, and uh, as well as physical abuse, you know, maybe they, this could be some camaraderie, and we realized that was a mistake. Right. Because a lot of these women didn't understand trafficking and they're looking at it like these women are prostitutes mm-hmm. and they're like, I was married, you know, or I was a long term girlfriend. I'm not your quality of a woman. Yeah. And so it was a lot of like we realized it was bad. And then we realized that also a lot of the staff that were at these places didn't understand tra- um, trafficking and they were kind of playing into it, treating, and we didn't know at first, you know, you're thinking, well, maybe it's the victim because she's been on the streets and she's had to learn how to lie and manipulate and things just to survive. So maybe she's making this up. Maybe it's her trauma. She's paranoid. But then when you see it going on over and over again and you investigate and you realize, wow, you know, these people don't understand trauma. That's what the whole issue is. And so, um, you know, so that's a challenge. But trauma, being trauma-informed is a really, really important thing. And and it's a very deep thing, I'm telling you. It's not, um, it's something you take time on. It's something you learn and you master because there's trauma on uh, that these women incurred, uh, and guys, that they incurred before. Right. Because see, the trauma they incurred before is what made them easily, you know, to be targets and become victims of trafficking that that added this trauma there's other trauma on top of it so you got to understand the past trauma and then there's cultural stuff i talked about that last night uh being cultural being um having cultural competency where you're learning like different cultures have their own trauma as well and so you have to you're going to help them you got to understand a different culture and there's cultures within cultures so this is some this is work not for the faint you know if you're going to go in the field to really help you got to go deep and you have to understand that um, every situation is different. Every uh, victim is different. And you got to be willing to learn from each person. I also asked if he could describe what trauma may look like to girls who've been victimized. For the most part, you will see the the sexually, you know, being promiscuous acting out because they're still trying to even understand that. Um, you know, now that's been uh, they've been subjected to that this part of their life. Uh, another one is to be very, very independent, um, very defensive for a lot of things, and majorly untrusting mm. of people, and especially men. Like all of a sudden, you every man wants something. You know, if you're being nice to me or you want to give me something, it's because you want something sexually, um, and preparing themselves for that. And then you'll have some that's been it's the opposite effect, where it's very they're withdrawn. And so very afraid, um, don't want to speak up, don't want to be seen, um, want to be invisible, uh, that kind of thing, because they're so, their spirit is so uh, beaten down. Mm-hmm. So you'll see the difference. And, and the reason why one of the things the studies have been showing is because of the what they came from before. So what trauma they experienced before. Mm-hmm. It makes a difference. And mm-hmm. so the one who was in, pretty much kind of empowered before that happened, to them, they tend to be a lot more vocal and the ones who are acting out, you know, that people are judging and labeling. And then the ones who were not were abused early on, they've been kind of taught to be, you know, submissive and things of that nature, especially if there was any physical violence done as far as like, um, you know, beatings or things like that, or um, maybe punished with food or uh, locked up someplace uh, in closets or things like that or in cars, um, it, it comes different. They get very um, submissive and very withdrawn. So it's uh, definitely different. But one of the things they all have in common is is trauma. You have to be very, uh, you know, that's that it's 
display differently and it affects them differently, but your approach, uh, the environment you're going to even meet with them in, is it makes a major difference. And then your approach from the tone of your voice to the body posture, um, and just knowing as much history as you can of what trauma they went through before and at the hands of who. So you know you can do your best, uh, just create the best case possible for them. Um, so if it was a man, for sure, then um, hey, guess what? If it's a white man in his 30s, you know, then I don't want uh, any white man around and, and with this first initial assessment. Uh, and we can have some great white men around, but we don't want him around. Um, right. If it was a black guy, you know, a beard or whatever, we don't want him around right now for this person. So it's so is that technical. And so it makes a difference um, in just the tone and expecting them of asking them to do tasks, next steps. How do you, how are you asking them to do that? Is it sounding forced or is it sounding like they don't have a choice? If they're gonna get this help, they have to do it this way. Or are you giving them an opportunity to exercise some uh, opinions and, uh, and making sure that they are being respected and, and have rights to exercise? You know, all of those things. So yeah, I mean, it definitely looks different for each person, but those are the ones that I've personally witnessed and seen. So because it looks different and every young person is different, every intervention needs to be different. Now, we know that some things are common, like trauma, but how that trauma is addressed should be based on the needs of the individual victim or survivor. Also, he spoke briefly about men and how if someone had been victimized by a man, being aware of that during the first assessment can help make the environment more comfortable. So I had to ask him, are there very many men working in social services now? Because when I first got started in social work about 10 years ago, there weren't very many. Here's what he had to say. You know what, there's still not, but it's more than what it was. And that's very encouraging. And I'm grateful you said that. So, you know, it's interesting because back then, of course, and it's still more men that we know of as far as what we have data for, there's more men that are the traffickers. Yes, there's women traffickers. And um, there's even women that are involved with some of the men um, that are trafficking and partnerships or whatever. But it's still more men that are doing the trafficking that that's that show. However, because of that at the time, it wasn't even that known that there were a lot of women involved, willingly involved, helping with these partnerships or whatever. So men were kind of ostracized. You know, they were looked at as the bad because you're the ones who are hurting it. And again, we didn't have a lot of studies and at the time and didn't realize there were men that were actually being trafficked, sex and labor. We didn't know that stuff then. You know, uh, I mean, we knew labor, but we didn't know sex. So, yeah, men were like just, I mean, you go to the conferences and it was like majority all women. I mean, when I said like 98 point something, maybe 99 percent women. And even though things that were being spoken, you know, and I'm great. It was great because, you know, it was about empowering the women and things of that nature. But it was demonizing men. And I didn't understand the power that men have. A lot of these young girls uh, were in these situations because they didn't have a strong, positive man in their life. Um, speaking life into them and things of that nature. So right. the men do play a po an important role. And now what you're seeing is that there's so many men actually getting involved in this fight and it's making a major impact. It sends a message that to women that, wait a minute, not all men, especially if all I've known all my life is guys just wanting something from me um, and never treating me with respect unless I'm giving them something. But to see men that are being kind and respectful to me and believing into me and they want nothing but my best, you know, that's, that sends a powerful message. 
I think that's also encouraging because if we had more men involved, maybe we can do something about that whole supply and demand thing. For example, if more men are telling each other and telling boys not to buy sex, it has an impact. I 100% I agree. I have personally written a letter to a certain court um, and I asked, because I have actually did a diversion class for a guy who was a, who bought sex, who was a John. And um, I wrote a letter to a, a specific court asking them, um, you know, this is what we want to do. We think this is a really great idea because why do you continue to make these women when they're arrested and things to go to these courses as well, uh, constantly, because they're constantly the ones being told that they're not worth anything. Nobody cares about them. You know, you didn't mess up your life and this and that. Well, why would you further reinforce that by forcing them to go through all the courses? And now the guys who buy the sex get a slap on the wrist and they're back at their work or they're back at, you know, their family with their homes and yada. No, make them now interrupt their lives right. and make them have to miss work and explain their job why they're going to these classes or explain that they're married to their wives or to their church or different things of that nature. Like now force them, make be be harsher on them, give them more time. Because if you hit the demand and you, you scare enough guys from wanting to buy sex, then they're gonna stop doing that because they don't want to risk and deal with the consequences. And now what it does, these guys who are involved in this business are gonna have to find something else to do because nobody's wanting to buy sex. Right. And now, uh, and I think also edu it's just education again. Our guys, you know, with this culture, you know, even with hip hop and all this and the strip clubs, like educating them, the strip club is not cool. A decent man does not go pay to watch a woman be naked and right. dance and things because they look at that. That could be what I want my daughter up here, what I want my niece, what I want my sister doing this, what I want my mom doing this and loving people enough now to not exploit them and speaking life into these women to say, hey, here's other options. Here's things you can do to make money. Right. right. And it's worth it. And even if we can't find you nothing to make as much, maybe you're killing it over here doing that. But also look at what at, at what cost. What's the cost? Your reputation. Yeah, just things like that. So it's just really, uh, I think, education is not to be judgmental. It's just it is what it is. I mean, you're you are exploiting. You're being exploited doing by doing that. And some women like to look at it as empowerment. But I think, again, it's just a matter of education. You're not empowering nothing if you have to be naked and showing your body to, to, to appease men to make some cash. That was powerful. And I think that's something that a lot of us as women need to hear. We wrapped up the interview with me asking, what advice do you have for men who want to work in social services as providers? Here's what he had to say. I say, do it. You know why? Because, and I understand, I get it why. You see, again, we gotta, we gotta look at culture. And so I'm, a, I'm big on history, I'm big on culture. I live for it, I breathe it, I love it. And I understand, okay, let's, let's take, I am a Christian, right? And I get it. Uh, but I look at other cultures. I look at Islam. I look at that and I'm heavily, you know, educated in, in different ones. Uh, Jewish faith with Judaism as well as Islam have many friends. And a common thing that we have is that the man is the provider. And unfortunately, we got to look at the reality now with that mindset. Uh, and you may, and there's some men that are gifted because they were sent here with that gift. Their talents and their gifts and their things that you know you learn because of, you can get talented at something by learning but a gift is something you just you're given that 
Right. And, and because that you excel, there's a certain genius to you. And there's so many men that are really amazing in this field, in the field of human services, because they've been given a gift of discernment. They've been given a gift of wisdom. But the challenge is we have to be realistic. We live in a country where, you know, and this is no shade to anyone. It's just facts where we will pay millions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of dollars to someone to dribble a basketball, throw a football, kick a ball. But people that are out here changing lives, healing people from social workers to therapists to school teachers, basically we're paying them peanuts. Right. And so how can a man with a gift like that and a passion and love for that, that wants a family and wants to take care of family, how can he go there? Right. As much as he may think that's so noble and he may even feel that's what I'm called to do, but I can't survive off that. That's why I commend the men that are in the field that are working there. But of course, you see him in services is always heavily overpopulated with the women. Right. Um, and and most of these women, not all, but most of them, they have partners. They're married. They have people that have a, a extra income coming in and things of that nature. So that's what we're dealing with. So it's a way to kind of uh, help men to figure out ways to do it. So I'm big on having other businesses, having mm -hmm. other things going on. Don't let nothing rob you of your calling. So you know what? You can't control the government, but you can control your life. So use that talent and the geniuses you do have to create other income from yourself. So you can, and this is why I did uh, my organization and my business partner, who is a man, um, is to be able to do this. So we do other things outside to get income in, to right. make sure that we are still able to do what we feel called to do, which is being in this fight and to help mankind and to help in human services. Okay, so that was our interview. And as always, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with this guest. Um, I ran a little bit longer than expected, so we are going to get right into music from our featured artist. This is She Speaks with Naked Thoughts. Because I internalized what's love got to do with it. I figured what's love got to do with it. Until he drug me, drug me through his forest of lies. Till he drug me, drug me through his forest of lies. Till he drug me, drug me through his forest of lies. Till he drug me, drug me through his forest of lies. I love you like passionate pain. Love you like drops in the rain. Couldn't see clouds, it was late. Couldn't see clouds, it was late. Checking my tunes, wanted to take care of you. You were the tunes I was singing to. You with my blues, climbing of trees for a view. Love was inside of you. I can see the fight of you. Never could confide in you. What am I to do? What am I to do? Tell me what am I to do? What am I to do? Cause I internalize what's love got to do with it. I figure what's love got to do with it. Until he drug me, drug me through his forest of lies. Till he drug me. Drug me through his forest of lies till he drug me. Drug me through his forest of lies till he drug me. Drug me through his forest of lies. Gave birth to disappointment. Gave birth to abortion. 
Got me sipping jealousy like pain relief. Gave birth and aborted me. Still looking for the heart you tore from me. You were the core of me. Now it's rose on your casket. Rose on your casket. My soul is on your casket. Weddings plus funerals equals love with no posts. It's funny that now I have to bury you. For years in my heart, I carried you. It's hard to believe I would have married you. I was so naive, it bothers me. Ruined my odyssey. Will this ever heal? Wound, heal, I need the real. Oblivious to my wilderness, couldn't see the star. You're oblivious to my wilderness because you're avoiding yours. Ignorant to my willingness, why is love such a chore? Remember this, I'm belligerent. You know I hate that whore. I'm killing it, I'm killing it, I'm building on these sores. I'm killing it, I'm killing it, I'm building on Once again, that was She Speaks with Naked Thoughts. You can purchase her music on iTunes and follow her on Instagram. She is at She Speaks, that's with two Ks, so it's S-H-E-S-P-E-A-K-K-S. I also want to congratulate She Speaks and Michael because they recently welcomed Baby Rain into their family. Also, this summer, She Speaks and Green Pines Media will be collaborating to help emancipated youth showcase and monetize their artwork. We will keep you posted. Thank you for listening to Formerly Fostered. Subscribe to us by going to Apple Podcasts or follow us on SoundCloud. Feel free to leave a comment or email us at info at So until next time, have a good one.